Chad and Jay Mansbridge here, lead pastors of Bayside Church International, based here on the south coast of South Australia. Our great passion as a church is to help people to know Jesus and to demonstrate his love, truth and life in everything that we do. We hope you enjoyed today's message. G'day. Uh, for those who don't know me, if you're visiting, watching this recording, uh, listening to this on our podcast, uh, my name's Chad and I had the great privilege of being able to share today and finish off a winter series because I have some very good news for you. This is the last weekend of winter. And so it's time to put on your florals, darlings, and your bright colours because uh, spring is on the way. So next weekend, Father's Day, first Sunday in spring and uh, the end. So I thought today I need to finish off our winter series, winter preaching series, which I've simply called Word Up. And this is actually our first teaching series, I think, ever that has not just been recorded for audio, this whole series, but all seven parts, including today, will end up on our YouTube channel. And I just thought it'd be a great opportunity to thank our media team, Mark and Alice and the other guys who make all that possible. There's a lot of work that happens at people's homes, behind the scenes, weekends, and, uh, and at night time, so to, uh, to get that possible. And certainly, I heard from some of our grey nomads this week from Queensland. Uh, I won't tell you what they said about the weather, because I don't care. But they, what was important is that they said they were keeping up to date, listening to the ministry from this church. They never feel like they're too far away, and that is made possible thanks to our media team. So a big thanks to you guys. But this is a Winter Preaching Series. This will, I'll be finishing off today, part seven, which is just a great number to finish on. And, uh, but I have to finish it, because it's winter... And I'm doing a, I mean, this is a big subject. We're looking basically at how to understand the Bible, how to read the Bible, how to choose the Bible, how to handle the Bible, how to get the most out of God's Word. It is a massive subject. In fact, the book I'm writing at the moment is all about this kind of thing, uh, interpreting the Bible well, handling the Scriptures well. And as part of my study, I went to the Christian bookshop and I bought two books on hermeneutics, which is the fancy pants term for this whole thing. I brought, bought one called An Introduction to Bible Interpretation. It was this thick, because it's just an introduction after all. And I thought, that's a bit... I looked at another one, it was called An Introduction to Bible Interpretation. Slightly different title, again, this thick, hardcover, full of citations. Point is, in academic circles particularly, this is a massive, massive subject, and I've just done my best to bring some uh, helpful tips and bits around this subject. We're going to finish it off today, and uh, so I'm going to do that. But I'm going to uh, start by reading our key verse. I said essentially there are a simple process. I see everything in threes most of the time. So there's a simple three-step process in the Bible uh, that is found in Nehemiah in this story. I'm going to read from a version here called the Christian Standard Bible in Nehemiah 8 verse 8 where it says this, Ezra and a bunch of priests stood up and it says they read out of the book of the law of God translating it. All right, translating it. The very first thing that needs to be done when you want to ask the question, what the heck is this book is about, you need to read it in a translation that makes sense to you. Done. Because none of you know Hebrew, none of you know ancient Greek or ancient Arabic that I know of. Uh, so you need a translation. So we looked at uh, choosing a Bible. The first step is to read the book. You've got to ask yourself the question, what does the Bible say? First thing. Second thing. As we keep reading this verse, and then it says, not only did they read and translate it, but secondly, they gave the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. They read it and translated it, and then they gave the meaning. 
Two questions. Firstly, what does it say? Second question, what does it mean? That's the second part in the process. I know what the Bible says, but what the heck does it mean? And that fancy pants term for that is the word exegesis. We're going to be finishing off this part of the message today. And then the next verse, Nehemiah verse 9, chapter 9 verse 9 says this. Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were with the people said to all of them, this day is holy to the Lord, do not mourn or weep. Because all the people were weeping as they heard the words of the law. They knew what it said, they knew what it meant, and then they responded by weeping. Next verse. Then he said to them, no, 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 go home, eat, drink, and be merry, <laughs> and be generous. Send portions to those who have nothing prepared, because today is holy. So don't grieve, because the joy of the Lord is your strength. Famous verse there, okay? This is the context. He Then the third step in handling the Bible well, after we know what it says... What does it mean? What does it matter? What does it say? What does it mean? And what does it matter to you and to me? And here in this story, the people heard what it said and heard what it meant, but they interpreted it or they took the me how it mattered to them that day wrong. And Nehemiah needed to coach them and say, no, 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 no. You know, the implications for us today are good. They're happy. Actually, be joyful because although this is what God had said in the past to us today, we're at a different point in history and the implications for us are good. There is hope coming. Okay? So these three steps. What does it say? What does it mean? What does it matter? Where we take the information in the Bible, we interpret that, what does it mean? And then we discover the here and now implications for us today this is the challenge of bible students all over the world we all have the same book we know what the bible says but we reach drastically different conclusions when we get to this point and say well what the heck does that mean for us today and the the uh the reason there's so many differences is because of this process what does it say what does it mean and then i work out well how does that matter to me today i want to finish off quite briefly on what I've called the ABCs of interpretation, this step here. Okay, I've been looking at that the last couple of weeks and then finish off um, actually giving you a case study. I'm going to sit down and invite you to watch me do a personal Bible study, give you a bit of insight into my how I read the Bible at home. I just won't have a coffee or my pyjamas on. Other than that, <laughs> it's pretty well what you're going to get from me at home. So the last few weeks we've been looking at this second step. What does it mean? And I said there are four simple things we should consider when understanding the meaning of a biblical text, the ABCs of interpretation. A, we need to consider the author and the audience. All right, you ask yourself, who is speaking and who are they speaking to? Because while all of the Bible is written for us, not all of the Bible is written to us, all right? You need to consider the audience that it is addressing in order to discover what it means. B, you need to consider the Bible's big picture background. Okay, where does my piece of the puzzle, this character, this teaching, this scripture is like a piece of the puzzle, where does that fit in the big picture? 
All right, I need to step back and understand the Bible is 66 books that tells one progressive story. And last week, picture up here on the wall of a bookshelf with 66 books on it, okay? Last week, I walked through a bit of a history of a bird's eye view of the Bible's story. And understanding the Bible's big picture and where my piece fits in helps me to understand the context, context, context of what I'm reading, okay? Three golden rules of real estate, location, location, location. Three golden rules of Bible interpretation, context, context, context. All right? Part of the context is knowing where the part fits in the whole. Big picture background. C, we need to look at corroborating content. What does this mean, corroborating content? Basically, we apply the principle of two or three witnesses. If we see something in a verse, we don't just take that one verse and draw big conclusions from just one piece of evidence. All good uh, detectives know that you need to collate your evidence before drawing a conclusion. All right, And we have that in our judicial system. Uh, we, don't, uh, we don't convict someone of a crime based on just one piece of evidence. There needs to be overwhelming evidence. The greater, the higher the stakes, the more evidence there needs to be. And we get that in the Western world from Moses, who came down the mountain and said, in our court system, we need to have two or three witnesses before we draw a major conclusion and convict a criminal. Okay, up to then, if you read the, uh, um, the Hammurabi, uh, Hammurabi Code, how do I say that, Luke? Maserati Code? Hammurabi Code? Anyway, other ancient documents, okay? Kings and, and tribe uh, leaders of clans and chiefs and whatever, they could just execute anyone they want. I don't like you, you're guilty, off with your head. Moses comes down and he says, no, we just can't just do that. There needs to be evidence, okay? That the whole reason Western world develops science, testing for truth, comes from this understanding. Truth is objective and can be tested. And so you need to corroborate your content. And I looked at some examples of that last week. And the S, because ABCs isn't three things, it's four. A, author and audience. B, big picture background. C, corroborating content. S, the style of speech. It says there from the bottom of your heart, if for those who can't read it. You need to consider the style of speech that is being employed. I know that's what the text says, but what does it mean? Is it being metaphorical? Is it being allegorical? Is it supposed to be taken literally? Or... Am I reading something that's a figure of speech that I'm not supposed to take literally? When I say something comes from the bottom of my heart, it's a figure of speech. It doesn't mean it comes from the bottom of my heart, okay? It's not literal, it's a figure of speech. And this is one, basically the word for this is the genre of literature, okay? The style of speech. What are we supposed to understand this literally or are we, is the author wanting us to understand it as something that's parabolic or hypothetical, etc., etc.? The Bible is full of things that we are not supposed to take literally. You can take the Bible seriously. You can take it all seriously without having to take it all literally. It's okay to say that because it's what the author wants us to understand. Does he want us to take it literally? And there's a lot of different forms of literature, genres in the Bible. Some of them are really well known 
for saying things that you're not supposed to take literally. Poetry is a big part of that. Prophetic stuff is often a big part of that. It speaks in hyperbole, in exaggeration, in pictures and imagery and in symbols. You're not supposed to, to, to really see that there's a lamb with, with seven horns and ten, whatever it is, you know. This is a picture of something else. And Jesus, the prime example of somebody who got into trouble using non-literal styles of speech a lot is Jesus. You can't just make a general rule about the Bible and say, if it's a prophetic book, that means it's all hyperbolic. No, you've got to take each case on its merit. You can't just also read the Gospels and go, well, the Gospels is history, therefore everything in there is literal. No, you've got to take every case on its merit. And in the Gospel of John, just as one example, we often see Jesus getting into trouble for using non-literal physics of speech. It starts right at the beginning, in John chapter 2, where he's in the temple and he says to them, listen, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. Remember Jesus saying that? And it literally, this is one of the things they brought up at his trial. Years, you know, at the end of his life, they brought it up. They said, he threatened to destroy the temple and then reckons he can rebuild it. It took us years to build this thing. But John's very clear. Even though that's what they thought he meant, he didn't mean destroy the Jewish temple. He was talking about his body. When he was talking about it, it was a picture. It was a figure of speech talking about his body. They only realized that later. Jesus was speaking hyperbolically, all right? In the next chapter, John 3, he comes across a man called Nicodemus and he says, listen, mate, no one has any hope of seeing the kingdom of heaven unless he is born again. And Nicodemus takes Jesus literally and he thinks, how the heck is a man going to get back into his mother's womb to be reborn? How's that going to happen? Hand slap, you know, face, face palm sort of moment there. In the next chapter, we have Jesus at a well and a woman's there getting water. And he says, listen, if you would drink the water that I give you, you'll never thirst again. And she says, that sounds awesome. Show me where this water is so I don't have to keep coming out here to the well. No, that is not. By that he was speaking, it says he was speaking of the spirit who he was yet to pour out, okay? He was speaking hyperbolically. Uh, As she goes into the city, she brings a crowd out. The the disciples come back to Jesus and they say, Lord, are you hungry? We brought you some food. Went into Macca's while you were talking to the lady. Here's some food. And he says, guys, I'm not hungry anymore. After all, I've got food that you guys don't know anything about. And they're like, why don't you share it with us? That's a bit (laughs) great. Jesus has nerve, right? He's got water, He's asking a woman for water. Hey, get some water for me, would you? By the way, I've got water that I don't actually, you know, that is eternal. I've got water, as much water as I like, but I want you to get me some. Oh, the nerve. Now he's sending his disciples in the city to get food, and he said, I've actually got food. I snuck some and didn't want to share it with you. Now, he wasn't being literal. He said, I've got food, and he says, my food is this. It's to do the will of the one who sent me. He explains to them. I meant it as a figure of speech. I wasn't talking about physical food. I was talking about how I am energized by doing my Father's will. Two chapters later in John 6, he's at a crowd of people and he says, Listen, unless you drink my blood and eat my flesh, 
you can't have anything to do with me. And in that situation, people who thought he was endorsing cannibalism (laughs) turned around, walked away, and he let them walk away. At that time, he didn't bother explaining himself. He explained himself to the disciples. Guys, come on, when I say food, I mean God's will. He explained himself to them. He explained himself to Nicodemus when he was like, how can I get back into my mummy's tummy? And he said, listen, mate, I'm talking about being born from above. Uh." But in this case, he just says, you need to drink my blood and eat my flesh. And people just turn around and walk away and he lets them. He actually lets them misunderstand him. And there's all prophetic reasons for that. But here's the point. What Jesus said and what Jesus meant were sometimes two different things. Not everything that Jesus said you were supposed to undertake literally. And people got themselves into trouble. People took him at his word. But they didn't take him at his meaning. And it still happens today. Misunderstanding what he meant by what he said. So one of the things we as good Bible students need to do The ABCs of proper interpretation. Author and audience. A, who is this being spoken to? B, where does this fit in the big picture background? What's happening here? The foreground information makes a lot more sense when I understand the backdrop. C, I want to compare the content elsewhere. Is that really what it means? How does it compare with other scripture before I draw a conclusion? And S, I want to consider the style of speech being given. Is this literal or is this non-literal? And it's not that that's the way I want to understand it. It's like, how does the author want me to understand it? Because the aim of exegesis is to discuss the author's intended meaning. AIM, the author's intended meaning is the aim of interpretation. I know what it says, what does it mean? And now that I know what it means, what the heck does it matter to me? How do I take historical information, historical meaning, and how does that matter to me in the here and now? And in order to do that step today, I'm going to do a Bible study. All right? So let's do it. I'm going to put this down. Get out a stool. And if you brought your Bible with you, open up to Matthew chapter 17. Oh, that's okay there. You all good? Welcome to my place. Um, I am an intentional Bible reader and one of the things that I'm doing is I'm reading through the book of Matthew and I've just come up to chapter 17. So that's what we're going to read. I'm going to read one story. I'm going to see what it says. I'm going to ask myself, what does it mean? And then I'm going to try to find out how that matters to me. And what I want to do is share with you how to find the joy in biblical application. That's where we're going to finish, finding joy. Like Nehemiah, okay, find the joy and uh, that's where we're headed today. So Matthew 17. I know because before Matthew 17 is Matthew 16. 
And I know that Jesus is walking with his disciples. They've just been in a region called Caesarea Philippi, who the people say the Son of Man is. All that sort of stuff has kind of just happened. And uh, so I've been reading through the gospel, and I understand that's a bit of the context. Uh, I've started chapter 17, and I've realized that Jesus just had a transfiguration. Elijah, Moses, he had some of his disciples with him, but some stayed behind because they went up on a high mountain. All right, And so they've come back from this transfiguration experience, and we read the story of the demon-possessed boy. Verse 14. When they came to a crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire, into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How much longer do I need to put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon. It came out of the boy and he was healed at that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we do drive out this demon? And he replied, because you have so little faith. Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it'll move. Nothing will be impossible for you. That's an interesting story. There's three things in this story that get my attention. What does Jesus say? The first thing that he says that gets my attention is, you unbelieving and perverse generation... How much longer should I put up with you? The second thing that gets my attention is where he says, talks about having faith as small as a mustard seed. You've got little faith, and that's not a good thing. You don't need little faith, you need small faith, like a mustard seed. All right, well, that's interesting. And the third thing he says, he talks about moving a mountain with that faith, and after all, nothing would be impossible for you. So what do these statements mean? I'm picturing the story and when Jesus says, you wicked, unbelieving, perverse generation, the first thing I need to do when I'm considering what does that mean is the ABCs of exegesis. And the A is audience. Who is Jesus saying that to? There's this poor boy that's sick. Is Jesus looking at that kid and saying, what a perverse, unbelieving generation. There's a dad who's asked for his kid, approached people to pray for his kid, hadn't got well. Is Jesus looking at the dad and saying, problem is, you are an unbelieving and perverse generation. I can't believe I have to put up with you. His disciples are there. They are learning how to pray for the sick. Jesus is discipling them. That's why they're called disciples. They've given it a go. They've given it a shot. It hasn't worked. And so Jesus looks at them and says, you guys are perverse and unbelieving. I can't believe I have to put up with you. Now, before I draw conclusions, I then need to ask, I then think about this. I'm sitting here and I'm thinking... They seem like bad, op- they seem a bit unusual, those options. It seems like a little bit of a strange thing to say, but I tell you what, I do know, is that I've seen phrases like this before in the Gospels. Jesus does have a habit of rebuking certain people and calling them a bad generation. 
I know I've seen that before. So what I'm going to do before I draw a conclusion is I'm going to compare my content. Okay? So I'm going to get on my Bible program and I'm going to look up the word generation. That triggers something in my mind. Generation. Who's he talking to? And I'm going to look up all the references of when Jesus mentioned a wicked and perverse and unbelieving generation. And I'm going to find them over and over again. In the Gospel of Matthew, before chapter 17, I'm going to read about one in Matthew 11, where he says, Who should I compare this wicked and adulterous generation? After all, they, they said that John the Baptist was a, was a this, now they're calling me a drunk, they're never happy, these guys. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the religious leaders that rejected him, rejected John, they're basically going to reject anything that God does. Okay, so wicked, perverse, unbelieving generation refers to religious leaders in that story. What's the next story that comes up? Well, it's when he talks to, in Matthew 12 and again in 16, where they ask for a sign. Pharisees come to him and said, give us a sign, prove yourself. And Jesus says, I tell you, only a wicked and perverse generation asks for a sign and this is the sign I'm going to give it, the sign of Jonah. Who does he call the wicked and perverse generation? The religious leaders. Oh, that's two runs on the board for them. As I look up the other Gospels, there are other stories and this same point is reinforced. It seems that in all the other cases, when Jesus rebukes a people and calls them a specific generation, he's talking to the religious leaders of the time and saying, you guys are wicked and perverse. In fact, on my Bible program, it comes up on the side a recommended verse from Deuteronomy. When the first time this phrase is used is in Moses, 1500 years earlier. And he talks about apostate Israel, God's old covenant community turning away from him, and he says they will become a crooked and perverse generation. So it's actually first prophesied by Moses. Well, that gives me part of the big picture view, doesn't it? I now understand Moses prophesied something, and now Jesus is calling his generation, or the religious leaders at least, in his generation, he's referring to that scripture and saying it's them. So now I'm sitting here reading this story, and I'm like, every other time, because I'm comparing my content, Every other time he talks about a wicked, perverse, unbelieving generation, it's about religious leaders. Is it possible in this story that that's who he was talking to? It's just an idea. What do I need to do now? I need to keep comparing my content because I've got a theory, but I'm a detective now. Okay, I've got a synopsis. I've got a bit of a, a, a possibility. Oh, I've got a spark in my mind. It's good to be curious. Number one, because it kills cats. That's a good thing. Number two, because... <laughs> Strike that off the thing. No, 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 there's too many cat lovers here. I just had to break the tension. Um, but number two, curiosity is how we learn. So I ask questions. Is it possible that Jesus, when he said wicked, unbelieving generation, was talking to religious leaders? Well, I find out in my Bible here that it says this same story is recorded in Mark. So let's look at that story and see if Mark sheds any more light on it. Okay? So I turn to Mark chapter 8. Let's read it and get a fuller picture of the story, Mark chapter 9, I mean. Mark chapter 9. There it is, transfiguration. I can see that. Same vibe is happening here. Here's another, is the same story told by someone else. Mark 9, 14. When they came to the other disciples down the transfiguration, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. Hang on, in Matthew... All I was told was that there was disciples, parents, and a poor little kid that wasn't healed. Mark's telling me, guess what? 
there was a crowd of people, and when they came down the hill, the disciples were arguing with religious leaders. So now there's religious leaders in the picture. Oh, that's starting to give me a bigger picture of what's going on, isn't it? As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. Hang on, what are you guys arguing with them about? He asked. A man in the crowd, now, who did he ask? We don't know. Was he asking his disciples or was he asking the religious leaders? Hey, what are you arguing with my disciples about? Maybe. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son. I brought him to your representatives. So as far as he was concerned, I was bringing them to you, Jesus, because these guys represent you. I brought to you my son who's possessed by a spirit that's robbed in a speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground, foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they couldn't. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long should I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Now, again, who did Jesus turn to when he said that? Well, at least we know there's another group of people there now, don't we? So they brought him when the Spirit saw Jesus and immediately threw the boy into a convulsion, fell to the ground, rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has this been happening? From childhood, he answered, it's often thrown into a fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, please take pity and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for the one who believes. Who's Jesus talking about when he says anything's possible for the one who believes? believes the man said if you can jesus and jesus said i can because anything is possible for the one who believes jesus is not telling the father to believe it's not i'm not commanding you to believe i'm the one who believes and anything's possible for me immediately the boy's father explained i believe help me overcome my unbelief You see how sometimes we take things personally? See how sometimes we miss the audience? Jesus is saying, if I can, of course I can. I believe. Anything's possible for me because I believe. And the father interpreted that to mean, oh, I have to believe, help me, help me. Took the pressure on himself. I I don't think that's what Jesus was saying. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him, And never enter him again. Isn't it interesting that Jesus spoke to the demon, commanded that healing before the crowd got there? Don't you want the crowd to see God's work happen? Don't you want the crowd to see, my disciples couldn't do it, but I can. Don't you want the crowd to know, to be able to tell the story, I was there, I saw Jesus do this? Or does this paint a picture that Jesus knew within that crowd there are going to be voices, other competing voices. My disciples tried to cast this demon out, but did they try to do it in a crowd of other competing voices where there was other voices, other voices, other voices, other voices? It did not succeed because around them was a whole group of unbelie- this unbelieving generation who keep opening their mouths and saying, God can't do it, it must be their sin, it must be the dad's sin, it must be the parent's sin, maybe this kid sinned in his mother's womb, blah, 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 blah. 
Jesus, I've got no interest in any of that. I'm here to deal with the problem. Jesus didn't wait for the other voices to come in an environment where it's just his voice and his alone. So that demon knew he was speaking. Jesus just said, come out. And instantly it happened. One voice, one authority, no other voices competing. That demon was not confused. Could it be that what Jesus meant when he said unbelieving and perverse generation, he was talking to the teachers of the law, arguing with his disciples who had stopped a miracle from happening because of their voices. Yeah, my disciples could have done it if you guys hadn't got in the way. So I'm going to separate myself from you, deal with this before you come back in. Maybe, maybe. Just asking the questions. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that he says he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted his feet and stood him up. After Jesus went indoors, the disciples asked him, how could we couldn't do it? And he replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. Textual variance there I won't go into, but this kind can only come out by prayer. And yet the prayer Jesus prayed was not, dear God, can you please? The prayer he prayed was a simple command. What this situation needed was a single, solitary, authoritative command with no mixture of a whole bunch of other voices involved. Jesus gave that and immediately that demon knew what to do. So I read that and I think, you know what? What seems consistent to me is that Jesus was ministering in a generation of religious leaders who were crooked, warped, and unbelieving. And they'd started to influence his disciples. Jesus was not rebuking his disciples for having a go. Jesus was not rebuking his disciples for not getting success. Jesus was looking at the ones who were arguing with his disciples, clouding their, their, their voices, adding their voice to the mix, and saying, you crooked and wicked generation, look what you've stopped from happening. Is it possible? that that's a more consistent understanding than Jesus saying to his friends, how much longer do I have to put up with you guys? Maybe. Get your foot off your pulpit, your mum's looking. Okay. <laughs> thank, thank you, Holy Spirit. Then there's another phrase Jesus says, in our, in our verse that got my attention. He says, the problem is, in Matthew, he says you've got little faith. But if you only had faith as small as a mustard seed. And I read that and I think, well, that's a bit of a, that doesn't make sense, Jesus. You've, you've got a problem that they've got little faith and you're telling them the answer is small faith. So what I want to do is I want to have a look at that verse a bit closer. I want to understand what Jesus meant when he said, it's a problem to have little faith, you should have small faith like a mustard seed. How many of you know that sounds a bit confusing? So I have a closer look. Now what do I do? Well, I read it in my NIV, but I know because I listened to Chad's message as part of this series, that there's different ways to translate the Bible. And one of the ways to translate the Bible is by taking a word-for-word -word approach. The NIV takes a thought-for-thought thought approach. They try to communicate what Jesus probably meant. 
But what if they misunderstood his meaning? I should go back to a word-for-word rendering so I can ask, answer myself this question, how can Jesus have a problem with little faith but then tell them to have small faith? Because that sounds stupid to me. So what I do is I get another Bible called the ESV, which is more literal. And I want to find out the word, what it means when he says small like a mustard seed. And this is what the ESV says. He said to them, because of your little faith, that's why you didn't, couldn't do this. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there or move and nothing will be impossible. Hang on. The word small is not there. This word for word rendering just says, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, it doesn't have the word small. Oh, well, that's a bit different. What I'll do now is I'll get on my computer program and I'll look up the Greek. You know how you can hyperlink stuff? And on there, I'll notice on the Greek, I can't read Greek, but I can, it, it, there's like an interlinear Bible. Really, it just has the Greek there. And I'll notice the word small doesn't exist. The word, small is, the word small is not there. The most literal translations say, faith like a mustard seed. My NIV people thought that meant have faith small like a mustard seed. But they put that word small in there because that's what they thought he meant. It's not there. It is like a mustard seed. So if it does, it could mean small, but what else is it about a mustard seed that Jesus might encourage me to have faith like that? He wants me to have faith that's yellow. Okay, I, I don't know what colour of mustard seed is. It might be that it's yellow. Well, no, maybe he's saying this. When something is that small, it's pure. There's no room for other stuff. It is just seed, nothing else. If you, the bigger the seed, the more shell covering. Other, it's like having pure heroin and then drugs that are mixed in, you know? Bad example, take that off the tape. Okay, um, it's like having something pure, pure alcohol or a silly vodka mix thing with guarana and caffeine and all bunch of other stuff put in. Some, that's another bad example, take that off the tape. <laughs> Gee, Chad, come on, what's in your head, boy? Is it possible that by using the picture of a mustard seed, he wasn't saying you need to have faith small like a mustard seed. Could it be that he just meant you're meant to have faith that's pure, just faith, no added extras? What were the Pharisees probably, it seems, doing as I'm picturing this story now in my mind? The disciples had a voice, or Jesus, let's say, the solution was a single solitary statement, come out. That is just faith, nothing else. I believe, I believe, he said. If, if, you, if you want, you can, yeah, anything's possible for he who believes. I believe, bam, it's going to happen. No other voices speaking. Is it possible that the faith, the literal faith uh, they had, was that these disciples, with all the words that were being spoken, all the blah, 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 words that were being spoken around this boy, only 2% of it was actually words of faith. All the rest of it was just blah, 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 doubt, unbelief, mixtures, different ideas. Oh, maybe this is happening. Maybe, maybe you should do this. Maybe you should do this. Well, our fair, we cast out demons like this. Well, we do it like this. Well, maybe he's not being healed because of this problem. Well, maybe blah, 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 blah. Jesus is coming. No, no, no. Of all the stuff that you said, 
in that, there was only a little bit of faith. You know your answer? Just say the faith bit. Like a mustard seed that's just pure faith. That's what it is. That's what this one situation needs. It just means a single statement of faith and nothing else. So Jesus says what this situation needs is one sentence. I, can, I believe, even though you, I, know you, I know you're weak in your belief, Dad. That's fine. Pressure's not on you. I'm taking the pressure on me. And before other voices come, I'm just going to say it as it is. Come out. Is it possible that demons didn't respond to the disciples' voice? Because the more they talked, the more the demons were like, hey, you're talking like someone that has no authority. You don't even know what you're saying. But the moment Jesus said one sentence, mustard seed, pure faith, that's all it was, no room for any extras, that's just what it was. They recognised straight away, these are words of authority. Maybe that's what he meant. And maybe I would only find that out if I looked in a word, for, ask the question first of all, be curious, and then dig a little deeper, look at other translations. Because if I only read a thought-for-thought thought version, they insert words because the editors think Jesus was saying, have small faith. Maybe what he's actually saying, maybe it makes more sense that he actually was saying, what you need is pure faith. Just faith. Hashtag just faith for this situation. Then I'm asking myself, what does he mean when you say, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, it'll move and nothing will be impossible for you? Well, could it be that that is a style of speech? Could it be that's a figure of speech he's using? He's just saying, pure faith can move mountains, man. And if it can move a mountain, it can deal with a little demon. Okay, if pure faith is that strong, it can move mountains. And that's meant to be a figure of speech that basically is like, that we've taken on board. How many of you know in our culture we use that as a figure of speech? Faith can move mountains. CD cover, you know. Faith can move mountains. It becomes a figure of speech. But then I think, well, why does he say faith can move this mountain? Not faith can move any mountain. Faith can move a mountain. Faith can move mountains, plural. He literally says, faith can move this mountain. If you say to this mountain. Now I've got another question. What mountain is he talking about? Now Jesus, when he'd said this, was probably, because I've read the previous chapter, probably in Caesarea Philippi, in that area, he'd just come down the Mount of Transfiguration. And in Caesarea Philippi, as we all know, there's a mountain called Oh, none of us know. <laughs> you know why you don't know? Because you don't know everything. And as a good Bible student, you've acknowledged you don't know everything and you need other people's help. Haven't you? Yeah, I need the Spirit, the Scriptures and the saints. Holy Spirit, what mountain was this? Hasn't told me. Great. What, what, what good are you? Uh, no, sorry. <laughs> Take that off the tape as well. Spirit hasn't told me. The Bible itself doesn't tell me. So I'm going to go and see if anyone else has worked it out. And it turns out there's a bunch of different theories as to about where Jesus could have been and nobody knows for sure. It might have been the largest mountain there 
at Caesarea Philippi, which I think the name was, uh, starts with an H, Hermon, not Hebron, Hermon. Jesus might have been saying, the mountain I've just come down from, if you speak to this mountain, it'll move. If that's the case, what the heck does that mean? There are many suggestions. <laughs> and one could mean that Hermon, when you do a bit of research, because none of you know this off the top of your head, Hermon was the northernmost point of the boundary of the promised land. So could Jesus have meant, if you want to go beyond the borders of your forefathers, it takes this kind of pure faith, but you can do it. You are invited to go beyond where your forefathers have ever gone. It could have meant that. The idea is that there are many ideas, many speculations and many theories and we don't actually know what Jesus meant because we don't know what mountain he was looking at. But it's okay to not understand everything. It's okay to not know everything. My step now that I know what the Bible says and what it possibly means is to say, well, what the heck does it matter to me today? And this is what I do. This is one tool I'll just leave you with. The joy of biblical application. Finding joy in biblical application. Joy stands for Jesus, others and yourself. When you read a story in Scripture, find the joy. First thing you want to do is say, well, what does this show me about Jesus today? What does this teach me about who Jesus is now? And as I read that story, the Holy Spirit might highlight to me and say, you know who Jesus is? He's the one who can do things that other people can't. He's the one that can change an environment where other people have tried, but suddenly Jesus comes up and a life can be changed. Jesus is the one for whom nothing is impossible. We, we couldn't do this. Your disciples couldn't do this. Nothing is impossible for Jesus because Jesus has perfect faith. Nothing is Maybe that's my takeaway. I find Jesus. And when I find out something about Jesus, my response most of the time is to worship him and to thank him. I'm in awe of what that passage has taught me about who Jesus is today because I know enough to know Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What does this passage teach me about Jesus? And maybe you can dwell on that and you'll find many other things. I'm sure you will. Oh, what does this passage teach me about others? Maybe the Holy Spirit shows me or the thing that highlights to me is this world is full of real people with real problems, real complexity, real situations, who are in real need. Maybe that's my takeaway. Maybe that's the thing the Holy Spirit wants to show me, that I live in a world where people really do have a lot of need. I live in a world where some people are so stubborn and want to have their voices heard that they can cloud out the good words that God has said to me. Maybe that's something that God wants me to see to learn about others because if i see that that's going to help empower me as i walk through my the rest of my day why 
What does this scripture teach me about myself, about you? One of the best things you can do here is put yourself in the story. Who do you identify with most in this story? Are you the little boy that needs a loving dad to take you to Jesus and to not give up on you? Are you the dad that has suffering in your family and you go, you know what? I'm going to learn the lesson from this dad and to be humble enough to say, Jesus, I trust you, but I'm not really sure how much because I struggle with unbelief. And it's actually okay if I say that because identifying myself with the dad means that I don't have to have perfect faith for the miracle to happen. Jesus just does. Maybe I identify with the dad. Maybe as the dad, I've asked, I've prayed, I've done my best to see a breakthrough in my family and it hasn't happened yet. And the lesson I need to take from the dad is this, keep asking. Don't give up. Don't give up on your kids. Keep asking. Keep bringing them to Jesus. Keep trying to find a solution. Maybe I identify with the disciples and that's the thing that illuminates to me. You know who I am in that story? I'm the disciple. After all, I am a follower of Jesus. That makes sense. And you know what? As a follower of Jesus, I've tried to pray for people before. I've tried to have breakthroughs in the area and it hasn't happened. I, I identify with giving things a go and it not working out. And I also identify, believe it or not, with the fact that when I've given things a go and I've failed, I believe I've heard a voice say, you've failed because you're wicked, perverse and unbelieving. Maybe that's my takeaway. I need to know that, no, 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 the disciples were confident to go to Jesus and say, well, coach us. We want to learn. We couldn't do it. We want to know why. Teach me. Maybe my takeaway is to not give up because I haven't had the results I want, but is to go to Jesus and say, teach me. I'm willing to learn. I'm a student. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to ask you the questions. I didn't get the breakthrough. You did. I'm not as good as you yet. How can I get better? I sat down with some interns this week from friends of ours, McLaren Vale, have a, a leader church. They've got a couple of interns with them. They said, Chad, can you spend a day with them during the week? I said, yep, spent all Wednesday morning with them. We went out for coffee after a bunch of conversation and they just sat down and they just said, talk to us, what, did you, what do you wish you would know when you're our age? Teach us, what have you learnt? And I just thought, that's awesome. They just want to learn from someone who has got a grey beard and is a little bit more experienced. Maybe if I identify with the disciples, I go, you know, that's who I am in the story. I'm the disciples. And it's good for me to say, I'm not a 10 out of 10 yet. I want to learn. And I'm going to be humble enough to ask for help. But maybe finding myself in the story. Maybe I can also identify myself with Jesus. Maybe as I place myself in the story, that's who I should see myself as. Because after all, there's only one man in that story that had an open heaven relationship with God. Jesus. And you know what I have? An open heaven relationship with God who I get to call Father. There's only one person in that story that was full of the Holy Spirit and had the Holy Spirit upon him. And that was Jesus. 
And you know who I am? I'm someone who has the Holy Spirit living within me and the Holy Spirit upon me. I identify in that story with Jesus. Maybe I put myself into Jesus' shoes and I say, Holy Spirit, what are you trying to say to me today? Because after all, I have never prayed, Lord, I want to be more like the boy with the demon. I have never sung a song, sung a song that says, Father, I thank you, you're making me like the dad. I've never read a scripture that says, I have been created in the image of the disciples. But I do know, and I have prayed, and I do desire, and the scripture does say that I'm like Jesus. So maybe I put myself in his shoes, and I say, Lord, what are you trying to say to me? I'm part of the solution today. Where others have failed, I can believe. Where others have tried, I can come and solve this problem. Because you know what? There's something at work that other people have tried and it hasn't worked and we're struggling. Lord, I thank you today. Like Jesus, I can see the solution and I can speak it. There's an issue in my family and a lot of people have tried to help. But today I put myself in your shoes and I say, you know who I am? I'm Jesus in this situation. I have the solution. And I walk with that confidence to say, wow, what, can a, what does a man or woman look like who is in right relationship with God, full of the Holy Spirit, with his wisdom on their lips? That's me. And I see myself like that. Wow. Because I want to say, from a theological point of view, from a heavenly point of view, you are more like Jesus than you are like the disciples. You are born again. You're in a right relationship with God. You have the Holy Spirit living within you. You live on the other side of the cross with eternal life in you. The disciples didn't even have that. That father didn't have that. The boy didn't have that. The Pharisees didn't have that. But Jesus does. In many ways, you are far more like Jesus than you know. I hope you've enjoyed today's message. Remember to check us out at baysidechurch.org.au. And of course, if you're ever in the area, please pop in and say good day.